Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. What a weekend that was. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host, Dan Tracy, and in the next 60 minutes, we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days, while in addition to that, there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been an incredible week of action and so much so, Carl has taken a break and is off doing some scouting for me. However, that means that Drew is leading the line on his own this afternoon and that means there's going to be some back and forth between us for the next 60 minutes. Drew, how have you been since we last spoke? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Dan. Much like Pulisic finally got his chance to shine for Chelsea this weekend, I think it's my turn to shine up front on my own. Hopefully I don't replace Carl, but if I can become the lead striker, I'll take that. That's it. I think, if anything, he needs competition for places. We need to keep him on his toes. So, uh, yes, the uh, the pressure's on for you to, to deliver this weekend, but I'm sure you'll be absolutely fine, Drew. So before you do, let's get the social media bits first out of the way. If you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at StanTracy1983. Of course, the podcast also has its own account, which is at RealFootballPod. So any questions, comments to either or is absolutely fine. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, then don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you also like that, leave a review. And if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can find me on SoundCloud and Acast. While the easiest way to find all the links is by going to realfootballcast.com. As you should know by now, the Real Football Cast is sponsored by Loserpool. What is Loserpool, I hear you ask? It's the company behind the game, Last Man Standing, one which is free to enter, and the prize pool once again stands at £1,000. If this has grabbed your interest, then be sure to visit Loserpool.com and create an account. The odds of winning are great, but they're even better if you sign up. Right then, it's time to go live. And where should we go first? I think, to be honest, we'll talk about the sack race, Drew. And if you're looking at the runners and riders, who is your next manager on the chopping block? Actually, I'll make it slightly easier. I'll give you three options. Oli Gunnar Solskjaer, Marco Silva... Mauricio Pochettino. Out of those picks, who do you think will be the next man who's no longer a man in charge of a Premier League outfit? You know, for the past 48 hours, I have been feverishly scrolling through Twitter and Google expecting to see Marco Silva sacked because Everton have been absolutely abject this season. And it seems like no matter who he puts out there, no matter what substitutions he makes, Everton cannot do anything to get three points, to get even one point from a game. So I'm expecting him to get fired this international break. But the fact that it's already Tuesday and he hasn't been fired is a little bit uh, worrying for me in terms of my prediction. But I I think he has to be the next one to go because Everton are in the relegation zone when I think with the transfers they had, they expected to be competing for top six. And the fact that they're at the other end of the table has to be absolutely horrifying to the board so I think Marco Silva has to be the next one to go well this is it isn't it I mean four straight defeats now you're sort of thinking how much more time has he got add the fact I mean that in itself is not good you know that usually is a run of results that will get you the chop but then like you say you've got top top six aspirations 
um, which is you know the polar opposite of where they are now. All the money that keeps continually being spent at Everton. This isn't just one summer of madness. You know they've sort of pumped a lot of money into the the project as it were, and it's not really ever going forwards. You know quite apparently they're going backwards. So when you compare him to the likes of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, who is sort of I don't know the man in, who's going to be taking things for a while at least because can United change again? And Richo Pochettino, which we'll get to now, really, because we might as well get Tottenham out of the way as a Tottenham fan myself. I'm looking at this, personally, I'm thinking the club is rotten to the core now. I think I'm not clamouring for Poch out, in a sense, you know, all the hashtags and all that. But for me, it's time to hit the reset button. However, Drew, what's your hot take on the white half of North London? You know, honestly, I think uh, a majority of the team, especially some of those key players, Christian Eriksen, Alderweireld and Vertonghen, and a few others, Danny Rose included, any of those guys who wanted a transfer in the summer or even possibly before that, I think they're mentally checked out. You know, myself, here in the U.S., when you're going to quit a job, the rule of thumb is to give a two-week notice. I don't know if you guys have something similar in the U.K. I'm guessing yes. Four weeks for us. But I know for four weeks. Wow. Yeah, Jeez, that's a long time. Yeah, you have to give a month's notice, so it's it's a real struggle because, like, you know, if you're checking out after two weeks, you got to double it, and the last two weeks you're just not really bothering at all. So yeah, it is a bit of a struggle. Exactly right. So I, I know for me in my experience, when I've quit jobs, that two weeks, or even if I was in the UK that month, I'm not doing anything significant at work. I'm mentally gone, and so I think that's happened with a lot of the Spurs players. Again, those guys I mentioned who wanted out but didn't get it. I don't think they're purposely playing poorly. I think mentally they're just gone. They're they're out of it. They're not committed to, you know, the project or committed to Spurs in the same way because they wanted out and they're disappointed they didn't get that. And so I think kind of combining all of that together when you have those key players, kind of that core of the team and they're not there mentally, then you can't really succeed. So I think it kind of comes down to what is Poch going to do? Is he simply just going to replace them in the 11 if he's going to put in young guys, if he's going to just not play them or what he's going to do? But I think it's a big question for him right now. I don't really see Pochettino getting fired. I mean, unless they, unless Spurs somehow get into the relegation zone, I don't see him getting fired. I think he leaves on his terms. Yeah, I think that's the more likely scenario. I think the fact that there's such a huge payout that would be required from Daniel Levy to facilitate any sacking is not necessarily the only thing keeping him in the job right now, but it's certainly helping because I think it's figures of about £25 million due to the length of his contract and whatnot. So, you know, that's certainly going to be a decision at level we have to make, but arguably the great decision is Pochettino thinking, you know, is this it? Can I do any more? Because if we look at the game itself, a nightmare start, a nightmare injury for Hugo Lloris. At the same time, could this be the easiest way to make a transition from Lloris as the number one goalkeeper? Obviously, he's not going to play till the turn of the year, but he has said himself he wants to go to the MLS probably, you know, let's say 18 months' time. That transition is going to be made at some point. So does this long-term injury give Gazaniga the perfect chance to establish himself as the long-term number one goalkeeper? I think it can if Spurs are out of the Champions League, if they are nowhere near fighting for top four. Not to say that they'd be mailing it in, putting in Gazaniga, but to a certain degree, it's like, well, we don't really have a shot at trophies. We don't have a shot at really extending any type of run or making uh, the top four. Therefore, might as well just start the transition now, kind of in the way that Leicester took on Brendan Rodgers at the end of, or with a third of the season left, and now at the beginning of this year, you see the fruits of that of that labor. So I think you could see that with Gazaniga, but I find it hard to believe they will put him in front of Hugo Lloris, a World Cup winner, team captain, some one of the longest-serving players at the club. I find it hard to believe. I think unless it's really just those real dire circumstances, no chance at top four, out of the Champions League, out of the Cups – then I think you might see that happen with Gazaniga more regularly. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Because if you look at the season where we are now, it's October. And it still is salvageable because it's just... Absolutely. You know, it's not throwing the baby out of the bathwater and all this sort of rash things that have to come with it. You know, it's a very bad run, don't get me wrong. But, you know, you win three in a row, you're knocking on the 
or top four again. You know, you could still turn around the Champions League like they did last season. So, looking at the evidence of Saturday, though, is there the concern that players have down tools? You know, we spoke about checking out and all that. The way that Tottenham used to play with a high press, you know, three, four years ago, we were almost famous for it. And now that's non-existent. You've got players literally strolling around the pitch. You know, again, is this just because they are mentally fatigued? Are they physically fatigued? How, what do you put that down to? Well, I'd hope they're not physically fatigued this early on in the well, season. Exactly, that's for yes. sure. I, I think it comes down a lot to tactics because the the lack of pressing to me isn't a choice by the players. Like, let's say, for example, Pochettino says, yes, guys, we're going to do this. We're going to counter press it at, uh, at this point. After this amount of time, if we, you know, if we go goal up, we're going to do this. If the players are choosing not to follow his tactics, I think he, he rips them out of the 11. He substitutes them immediately. So I don't think it's their personal choice. I think it's the manager's choice of how they want to play. Now, I understand that that's how Spurs have become, you know, a top four club over the past few seasons. But you can't just do the same thing over and over. I think he's trying, especially, you know, with the diamond that he's been doing now for the past, what, eight months, maybe a year or so. I think he's trying to do something different with the team because if you're just doing the exact same system every game, then your opponent can game plan for it and they're going to be able to break it down and beat you. So I think he's trying something different, ultimately failing, as we see week in, week out. Um, But I think that's what it comes down to more. And so with that, I think Pochettino has to find another new way of playing or maybe just a different combination of players to get – you know, the diamond to work, the lack of pressing to work, or move to, to something else. Of course, we should also give credit to Brighton, shouldn't we? Because when results like this happen, we always look at the bigger team having a disaster. But Brighton played really well. And I think I referenced last week that Graham Potter was perhaps going to have to change his system to return to winning ways because they're not once at the opening weekend. That was exactly the case on Saturday. And Aaron Connolly now seems to be the star of the show because his brace of goals gave... Aldevirold, Yambatogan, an absolutely torrid time. They made him look ordinary. So credit really has to go to Brighton, doesn't it? Yeah, I thought Connolly was fantastic on the day. Brighton were up for it. They absolutely wanted to to win at home because they had struggled for, I want to say, two or three games without scoring in the Premier League, and I think only one goal in five or six. So they really needed a win. And whatever Graham Potter said to them, before the match and whatever he said at halftime, it absolutely worked to perfection because Connolly was fantastic. And like you said, he was the star of the show and he's arguably going to be one of their most important players in the coming weeks as well. And for Brighton, I think they got off to such a, a great start to the year uh, on the first match day of the season. And then they really like petered out very quickly. And so I think this was great for them in terms of confidence. And I think now you can see them definitely go into more games with a better shot. I think when they come back from the international break, they have Aston Villa. So, of course, they have another shot to have, you know, two games, two wins on the spin. So I think this was a great time for Brighton, and especially beating a top team, lots of confidence for them. Actually, we don't usually mention the Champions League as much as we should do on this show. I don't want to gloss over the fact that Tottenham lost 7-2 to Bayern Munich. Drew, what can you make of that as an outsider, as a neutral? Because I'm watching that, and I'm just almost aghast by sort of, 5-2, 5-2, you're just almost laughing to yourself because it just got stupendous. How does a team like Tottenham's stature fall apart in that last sort of half an hour? Because we've been made to look absolutely abysmal by the end of it. You know, honestly, I I bet I had roughly the same reaction as you. I was shocked. I did not believe, you know, on the last 10 minutes of the game that Bayern would continue to pour it on, that Spurs would essentially collapse in that way at home showed no heart, no desire, no pride, and give up those last three goals. So I, I was just as surprised as you were. I mean, I, I mean, honestly, there's only one word to describe it, which is humiliating. Now, the players, we can chastise them, you know, up to yin-yang for poor, for poor showing, for being mentally checked out, physically checked out. But also, I think part of this game, you have to blame Pochettino a little bit because he left Sissoko by himself. I believe it was Sissoko in midfield by himself. He took off Ndombele, who I thought was the best midfielder by far for Spurs in the game against Bayern, 
if not the best player on the pitch. And he took him off with roughly 30 minutes to go. And then he also took off Harry Winks, who didn't really have a great game. But you left one defensive midfielder in there when you had three originally. And he had to cope with all of Bayern's attacks, whether it was Lewandowski through the middle, whether it was Gnabry, Coman coming in from the sides, whatever it happened to be. And he was just left hanging out to dry. And I know that the reason was to bring on attackers and try and get back in the game. But I think Pochettino has a lot of blame for that as well because three of those goals came on after the last substitution when, again, I I believe it was Sissoko in the middle uh, that was just left out to dry. Yeah, I mean, the substitutions were brave and bold and if they did somehow get back to 4 all, we'll be lauding Pochettino as a genius. However... It was completely opposite, really, wasn't it? Because you're like, well, what are you doing? This is Bayern Munich. Like, they're far too good to have just one player holding back, like the Alamo, really. And it just, you know, we got punished even more than we did. But let's move on because the second part of our, I guess, misery trilogy is uh, Manchester United. St James's Park was the venue on Sunday. I think they're just two points off the bottom three now, aren't they, Drew? Yes, it's early in the season, but at the same time, they shouldn't be there, should they? No, absolutely not. <laughs> it's so funny to, to say that. Manchester United are two points out of the relegation zone. I mean, for for 99% of clubs in the world, after two months, if you're that close to the drop zone, the question is, are you in a relegation battle? Now, with Manchester United, I, I, I don't honestly think they will be. I think they will avoid the relegation zone by, by a hefty sum. With that being said, though, Manchester United are absolutely depressing. I mean, if you're a fan... I don't think you can say that it you're you're angry watching them. I don't think you can say you're frustrated. Really the only word is that you're depressed. Because this is Manchester United. They have players that are international regulars. I know Pogba was hurt uh for for this match and he wasn't able to play. But still, you have guys. Nemanja Matic is a World Cup player every 4 years with Serbia, right? You have guys throughout the 11, that represent their nation on the highest level, every single international break, every single tournament, and yet they lost. Yeah, it was a way to Newcastle, but to me that doesn't matter. To what I think is arguably the worst team on paper in Newcastle United. That's how far Manchester United have fallen. They are absolutely abysmal. I mean, Solskjaer has, in the in his last 17 Premier League games with United, they have 17 points. That's what, that's what a bottom three side does. They get 17 points from nearly half a season. Again, I don't think United will get relegated, nor do I think they're in a relegation fight. But teams who have the record they have are in relegation fights. They are absolutely depressing to watch. Well, this is it, isn't it? Because there's always that cliche of a team that is too big to go down or too good to go down but ultimately football is a results business and if you're not getting results you will not go out of business but you will be in a, a lower league more often than not again you know that's a bit reactionary because let's be honest Manchester United aren't going to be in a relegation battle however I don't know about you but I think that was one of if not the worst Manchester United lineups I've seen maybe in my living memory I can't remember a Premier League team looking that average for Manchester United you look at the first 11 and it was just a list of like a who's who because you're just sort of thinking these are not Manchester United calibre players, are they? No, absolutely not. I, and I think uh, you're pretty spot on in saying this This is one of the worst Manchester United you've ever seen. Other than David De Gea and maybe Juan Mata, maybe Marcus Rashford, I guess you could say that, there's no one in that squad that I thought, yeah, that's a Manchester United player. The Manchester United that I've known, even growing up in the States, right? They, you know, they were the only team in Europe to ever have an impact on the other side of the Atlantic. And so, even as a child, I knew who Manchester United was. But the team that they have now, the squad that they put out week in, week out, not one player to me screams, "This is a Manchester United player." And half the guys they had out there were, or maybe not half, but a few of them were terrible buys under Jose Mourinho. I mean, Fred was, what, £50 million? 
he probably has played less than 50 matches with United. I mean, they're just simply horrendous. And that's why I say that the, it's been like this for such an extended period. And when you look at the the players they've bought, the only way to describe them is depressing. Because this is not, you know, for, for part in the cliche, this is not my father's Manchester United. Well, no, it's not, is it? I mean, ultimately, if you're a Manchester United fan, you've had the most incredible run of success across such a lengthy period of time. You know, the legacy that Sir Alex Ferguson leaves behind is just almost incomparable. You know, you don't really envision a team dominating for that long. So that run has to end at some point, and the drop-off has been, you know, not necessarily sudden, but it's been diminishing returns over those last, what, seven, eight years. And it's just, you do worry, well, I don't lose sleep over it, but you do wonder, I guess, how much... lower United can get you know do they chuck even more money at it do, can they spend their way out of trouble yes they've got finances for days but is that necessarily the answer you know you've got young players who are the future of Manchester United but they're exactly that they're the future they can't be sort of seen to be playing now because that growth isn't organic enough because then you're sort of thinking am I demanding too much of a Mason Greenwood or a Marcus Rashford and then you run the risk of sort of burning them out so United are almost in a halfway house where they don't really know which direction to go in and what direction would you recommend Drew? I don't think they can rely on that many young players because it's going to take several seasons for them to get up to speed not just in the Premier League but to be a Manchester United player and so I don't think you can look at it right now and say yeah you know what we're going to graduate in four or five guys this season and hopefully next year they're ready to, to hit the ground running I think that's asking too much of too many players. You know, you can look at Chelsea and say, oh, look, it's working out for them. I think it's a little bit different of a situation. I think United, and, you know, I'm sure I'm not unique in saying this, but they need someone better than Woodward making decisions, making football decisions of who they're going to bring in, how much they're going to pay, where they're going to fit into the team, what direction they're going. They need someone better than Woodward, whether that means it's a director of football or that means that Woodward is out and they bring in someone to replace him. Either way, they need that uh, position solidified first. Then they can go to the team. And I think they're going to have to buy. I mean, the way that Manchester United has fallen off, they can no longer compete on the open market for the top tier players. Take Killian Mbappe is in no way considering Manchester United. They can't go after guys like that. They have to go after guys that are a little bit lower in the tier. Uh, someone I really like, Duvon Zapata, plays in Serie, in Serie A. I think he would be someone that they can go after. He's a proven goal scorer in Europe. Yes, you can argue Serie A is you know, a, a lower tier league a little bit, just below the Premier League, fine. But those are the guys that United has to go after. They can't go after someone who's at the top of the market. And so they're going to have to be very smart with who they get and the amount of money they spend. And I think it has to start with a director of football or someone replacing Woodward. Yeah, I think the director of football is certainly that link that's missing because Ed Woodward has shown many times that he's not the the transfer genius that many would hope him to be, really. And I think United, as a consequence, are certainly suffering. But, like Brighton, it's unfair not to shine any credit on the winners. And Newcastle, in particular here. What a day for the Longstaff brothers. Sean, already established himself in the team, in the first-team squad, was actually a reported target for Man United in the summer. However, Matty made his debut. And, Drew, they don't get much better than that, do they? No, absolutely not. This was fantastic. You know, in 10 years, and 20 years, and 40 years... The two of them are, are going to be telling their grandkids about this day. And so it's fantastic for them, you know, especially sentimentally, uh, to have them playing together, to have Matty Longstaff on his Premier League debut score the winning goal at home. Two guys from the local area that have wanted to play for Newcastle probably since they could start or since they were able to walk. So this is fantastic for them. And I think it can work as a bit of a lift for Newcastle. Now, I, I'm not trying to go too negative too quick, but I, I, I've i had Newcastle going down since the beginning of the year. I don't think they have a shot. But on the flip side, they've now taken six points off the big six because they beat Manchester United and then they also won at Tottenham earlier this year. So they're showing a little bit of fight. They're showing that they're not going to go down so easily, whether that's in an individual game or 
or in the relegation battle. You know, honestly, I think with Newcastle, it kind of seems like they play up and down to their competition, right? Because when they played when they played Brighton recently, it was a drab zero zero draw over ninety minutes. One of the most boring games I've watched. Where in this game, they showed a lot of heart against a big team, even though you know Manchester United is is what they are now, but. They showed a lot of desire in this game to to be able to to grind it out and get a goal and to have a homegrown player like Longstaff do it. I think it's fantastic for them. So for their sake, hopefully they can springboard this into a little bit of momentum and get clear of that relegation zone. Yes, you're right. I think for Newcastle, almost the international break happening now after that result is probably the worst thing because now you've had that great result. You just want to play again straight away. And now you've got a two week break where everything dampens down and they do have a tendency to blow hot and cold. More cold than hot, in all fairness. But, um, yeah, I mean, there are worse teams at the moment in the division. You know, the table's not really lying anymore. And Newcastle, they'll give a good account of themselves. They're certainly going to be in that battle. But, you know, if there's more results, such as the one against United, and more importantly, performances, because I think, you know, sometimes you can just nick a win and get lucky. But I think they were the better team, really. And I think if they can sort of... Get the fans on side, which has been a bit of an issue. What with Steve Bruce being appointed manager, you know, he's still trying to win them over. But if he can get them on side, and certainly with, with wins like that, you know, it only needs those fans to sort of create St James Park back into a fortress, and you see Newcastle sort of winning more often than not at home, which is obviously the back rock and the bedrock of staying up. Right, the final part of our misery trilogy, and we sort of mentioned Everton already, so let's just sort of focus on. We said last week that um, they're a team that likes to be comfortable in possession, but they can't convert chances. And not only that, they were made to look very ordinary and outfought by Burnley on Saturday. Yeah, I, I, I mean, we'll get to Everton in a second, but Turf Moor is a tough place to go, especially under Sean Dyche. Burnley have always been difficult to play against, and they do get quite a bit of points at home so I think we have to recognize that part but yes with Everton only two shots on target throughout this match and they went down to to 10 men and you know that was you can say it was harsh or not on Coleman whether he should have gotten both yellow cards fine but Everton just show absolutely no life in them especially in attack and you saw that again in this game I mean if they if they continue to not have chances, let alone not convert them. They have a really, really big task on their hand, and I think they are in a genuine battle to stay up this year, which, like we referenced earlier, is absolutely crazy. Like you said, the amount of money they've spent, the players they bought over the last few years, their ambitions are to reach the top four. This is absolutely terrible. And and I'm not trying to take anything away from Burnley, but Everton's squad Everton's hopes and ambitions should never have them losing on you know away from home or not losing at Burnley that simply shouldn't happen and that's why like I said earlier Marco Silva's got to get fired Everton have absolutely no clue what they're doing and I'm sure a lot of fans are are screaming for for Moise Kane to come in and become the regular number nine. But even when he's played, he hasn't really done anything impressive to warrant being the starting striker. So they just have so many issues to solve right now that it, it's almost hard to, to pin down. What do they need to solve first? Then what can they move on to? Yeah, you're absolutely right in terms of Everton. And again, it's no disrespect to Burnley, but I tipped Everton to win on Saturday because I looked at the the quality of the two squads, the fact that Everton needed a result, they needed a win, I thought, actually, you know, it looks like a good tip away from home. Egg on my face, because it was completely wrong, wasn't it? But um, in terms of Everton, when the job was available last time round, and they sort of long-term courted Marco Silva, there was actually talk of Sean Dyche making that move. If Silva's head is on the chopping block, again, it's going to become open. Could you see Sean Dyche make the move to Goodison then? Not really. It's, it's hard for me to see Dyche leaving Burnley. I I would hope he and again this is no disrespect to Burnley. I would hope he has greater aspirations than managing at Burnley. And yes, Everton are a bigger club, you know, historically and and, and everything. But I don't think right now Dyche would want to leave Burnley for Everton. He's going 
several steps down and backwards at this point in time. So I think that would be a negative move for him. I think there are some some teams that that he could move to if the the spot were to open up, but right now I definitely don't think Everton is one of them. Right, that's the end of the misery. On the other side of the break, we're going to have the ecstasy, so don't go anywhere. Your accumulator letting you down again. You've cashed out early. And you just can't win. Prehistoric football coupons? Nah. Have a think about it. Why not play a new way? At Loserpool. Pick a loser and win a thousand pounds in a last man standing tournament. Be a loser and win at Loserpool. Enter for free now. Visit loserpool.com. Okay, welcome back. Now, Drew, we spoke about managers on the chopping block. Now it's time to look at the title race and one where, if this current run continues, might be one that just involves a single horse because, as we know now, Liverpool eight points clear and finally. They're the bookmakers' favourites. The odds have finally gone in their favour. So, it's still early days in the grand scheme of things, but can we now pinpoint Jürgen Klopp's men as the team that everyone else is going to have to stop? Yes, absolutely. Going into the season and, and throughout the first couple of months, it has been Liverpool and Manchester City. Right now, it is Liverpool. I mean, they're so far out in front that it kind of is. It's theirs to lose. They're running away with the Premier League title right now. And and yes, of course, you know, insert caveat, it's a long season. Insert caveat, anything can happen. Insert caveat, it's Manchester City, and they can go on a run too. Yes, of course. Um, what's important, though, is I think Liverpool, everything seems to be going Liverpool's way, right? Against Sheffield United, Dean Henderson let that ball trickle between his legs. That's how Liverpool win. In this match against Leicester, which I thought was a very even match, I thought Leicester did a great job, and Liverpool had a few other chances as well. At the end, in stoppage time, right at the death knell, they get a penalty, and you know Milner steps up, converts it very easy, easily. I think everything is just falling Liverpool's way, and it almost seems like fate at this point, because Manchester City are dropping points to bad teams. And so for Liverpool, I think they, they can't get ahead of themselves, of course, but it just seems everything is pointing to Liverpool are finally going to win the title. Their gap at the top has been helped by that perfect start. Eight games now, eight wins, although they were minutes away from that not being the case on Saturday. Did you think that Sadio Mane was fouled in the box or was it a case that he bought a penalty after the contact before it? I, I think it was a penalty. There was enough contact for me to warrant a penalty. Did he over-exaggerate? Did he really sell it? Yeah, probably. Me personally, I, this is, I'm, I'm guessing I'm going to differ from you and a lot of, of lo- a lot of listeners. I actually don't have a problem with diving. To me, it, it, I mean in every sport, you try and fool the official in one way or, the, or another. So it's not like that's unique to football. And plus to me – if you dive and you get awarded a penalty, great, you're trying to help your team. If you dive and you get caught, well, now you're going to earn a reputation and you're never going to get a call again. So it's a fine line to walk. And so for that reason, I'm okay with, with Sadio Mani. If you say he, he dived in this situation, okay, fine. I, I mean, I, I can understand why people say that. Uh, but I, I do think there was enough contact there to warrant a penalty. And I mean, in the box as a defender – you have to be careful, especially you've held out for all 90-plus minutes. You just got an equalizer before that, and you know you just, you're, like, you're right at the end. There was less than 60 seconds of stoppage time left. Brendan Rodgers had made substitutions to be more defensive in those dying moments. And so I think as a defender, that's your own fault for putting your team in that situation. Yeah, I think the way you described the penalty in the sense that there was enough contact. Yes, he made more of it, but... He was given the invite to make more of it, and as a defender, don't give, you know, don't give them that chance really, because a striker in the last minute looking for a win is going to take it, and you can't really have too many complaints from a defensive point of view. In terms of absolutely, yeah, exactly. So in terms of complaints, Jurgen Klopp was sort of making some in regards to Chowdhury's tackle on Mo Salah, which was minutes before. He was saying that should have been a red card. Is that a case of him sort of deflecting, knowing that Liverpool 
have just got away with one and the fact it was a bit of a dodgy penalty call was it sort of a case of, well, let's not focus on Mane, let's focus on the, the horror that was um, Chowdhury. But again, he's sort of magnifying it and no need to do so. Yeah, I could see that a little bit trying to deflect. I also think that was a really, really poor challenge from Chowdhury. Well, yeah, there is he, that as well. Yeah, he came in from behind. I, I think that was a dangerous challenge. And I think that could de- – I think some officials could arguably brandish a red card, and rightfully so. Oh, that was a horrific tackle. And also I think Klopp was worried about if Salah was genuinely injured and would he then you know, have to miss – you know, one, two matches in the future, international break or not right now. So it might have been a little bit he's trying to deflect off of, you know, the late penalty call, the controversial call, uh, and things like that. But I think also he was genuinely upset about it because, I mean, Mo Salah is, you know, the golden boy. He is, he is the chosen one at Liverpool. I mean, it, it, I, I genuinely think that... Mo Salah right now, if he retired as a footballer, would get a statue outside of Anfield. <laughs> He's only been there a couple seasons, but I-, I could definitely see that happening. And so I think Klopp, not necessarily buying into Salah getting a statue, but I think Klopp understands and sees how important he is to the club and to the fans and and to this squad in general and really cares about him. And so seeing him go down in such a, a horrific manner, I think that's why he kind of jumped to, to his defense in terms of um, Salah and Mane, you know, a few weeks back they had a bit of a spat in terms of not passing. It all seems to be well at the moment. I mean, their interchange play on Saturday, especially, was quite a pleasure to watch. Yeah, I mean, players have arguments all the time. You know, family members have arguments all the time. Co-workers, right? So that doesn't really matter to me in terms of, you know, Mane. I mean, I would hope that every striker in the world, especially of their caliber, uh, Mane and Salah, would want the ball. I hope that they are furious that they don't get a pass when they think they have an open goal. I would hope that they're furious when they think they have a chance to score and they don't get to. They don't even get a pass. So I like to me, that's that's the the hunger, the fight, the the competitive competitiveness of a world-class footballer. So I didn't have a problem with that. The one fear I did have, and it seems to have subsided, was if Mane did feel that he was, you know, second in line, second in command, and and didn't get the respect he deserved, then he would want to leave. And right now, it doesn't seem as if that's the case. And so I, I think, you know, that story went away really quickly because everyone has arguments, and and like you do as adults, you move past it. It was almost a smash and grab for Leicester, though. Their first shot on target after 80 minutes, and they would have thought at that point, enough for a second consecutive one-all draw at Anfield. That said, obviously, the penalties that we just spoke about, the outcome and the manner of defeat for Leicester is going to be a tough one for Brendan Rodgers to take, especially when he goes back to his old ground. Yeah, that's true, because Leicester came on you know, really lively at the end and, and, and leveled it. And so you're right, it's a tough t- pill to swallow, But I also think it's great for them in terms of showing them, look, guys, we can compete. We can compete with the big dogs. You know, when when Leicester beat Tottenham, right, we see Tottenham continuing to spiral downward. You could say, well, that's kind of a team with a lot of downward momentum. We can't take too much from it. With Chelsea, when they drew earlier in the year, it was like, well, Chelsea was kind of having a lot more struggles then. But now going up against a team that's 100%, going up against a squad that has been nearly flawless, and Leicester ran with them the entire time. So I think even though it is a tough pill to swallow, surrendering that late penalty, I think also for them it's like, look, guys, we can do this. We certainly can finish top four. We have the quality. We're playing well enough to do it. And when we come up against the big boys, there's no reason to be scared or worried. Talking of tough ones to take, Manchester City, they go into this international break, eight points, a staggering eight points behind Liverpool. I mean, the way they played against Wolves, you can only say it was an off day for Pep's men, can't you? It was, because Manchester City, I mean, we, we know about their defensive issues, and, and you know, you, you see Otamendi get torched on, on those counters. But attacking-wise, Manchester City just wasn't able to do it. And I think part of it, you can chalk it up to Kevin De Bruyne, 
who's been the engine of this squad so far this year, who's you know leading. He has as many assists as players have goals, and without him being in the eleven, I think really hurt them and kind of uh, brought them back down to earth a little bit. So Manchester City, I think, just like when they lost at Norwich, this was a bad day at the office. The problem is you have too many bad days at the office, and you're going to get so far off the, the title the title race that you're not going to be able to catch back up. So I think Pep has to be very worried at this point. And in January, I know he said before they're not going to buy in January, but they have to. They have to buy defenders in January because even if by that time if Stones is back and, and Laporte is close to being back, Stones has proven year after year he can't really hack it in the Premier League. He can't hack it in, in Pep's system. And Otamendi clearly can't. He's the worst of the senior center backs, and he's the only one fit. And then Fernandinho, a makeshift, yeah, he's great at his position as a defensive midfielder, but he doesn't really translate well. Uh, he doesn't translate well enough to center back. And so seeing a loss like this a second time, already early on in the season, Manchester City has to be looking to buy a defender in January. Ultimately, are we now seeing the lack of Laporte coming home to roost for City? Because Walker went off at half-time, albeit he was ill. You know, I think he had a stomach bug and he did his very best to play, but after 45 minutes, wipes out. Cancelo, really sloppy. Otamendi, like you say, absolutely just on toast, wouldn't he? Benjamin Mendy, he's always seemingly injured. I think he does a good social media job, but he's just not a footballer at the moment. It seems to be one thing after another in the defensive third of the pitch. So when we look at those issues and the point you've just made about they'll have to buy in January, what is the point gap that Pep will say to himself, right, as long as we're no further than this, we can still do this. Is eight points like the absolute maximum? Like It can't get any wider because you know you can say, yes, it's early in the season, but right now, Liverpool, they just don't look like a team that's going to lose eight points anyway. So it's sort of like, well, yeah, we can go on our own run, but we are sort of relying on the team above us to, to fall down. So how far can City allow the leash to go? Well, I think publicly, Pep is never going to admit they're out of the race. Unless, the only reason he does it is to like send a message to the team. But, you know, most of the time, him and Klopp, you're going to hear, well, it's football, anything can happen, it's a long season. So I think... You know, genuinely, they'll neither of them will either or will ever admit that. But I think you're getting close to that breaking point of being too far off of Liverpool because, right? Last year, Liverpool uh, had, I, I believe, it was an eight-point lead also in January and ended up blowing it with a bunch of draws. It's hard for me to see that happening, just because it seems as if fate is on Liverpool's side. So Manchester City. I don't think they can rely on Liverpool dropping points. Manchester City, I think from here on out, pretty much have to be invincible and win every single match. And that's highly unrealistic and highly improbable. But I think right now they're they're very close to that tipping point. I would say if, if I had to put a number on it, 10 points, nice round figure, double digits. And I think psychologically that's a, that's a big mental uh gap because nine points three three matches ten points yeesh, you're looking at a full month's worth of matches behind Liverpool because let's look at the last two seasons in which City won the league they won it with what 100 points and 98 points so really they've dropped what 14 points in the first season 16 in the second so you're looking at say if Liverpool do something similar there's not that many opportunities to Claw those points back if a team's going to be that dominant. So that's got to be the worry for City of, you know, yes, we might get beaten in terms of not doing three in a row, but that's because someone has hit the same levels. And if we're not at that level, then, you know, we're screwed, really. So it's a case of, I don't know. I mean, can City hope that Liverpool lose along the way? Because if we're sort of expecting Liverpool to be that good, there's not going to be many opportunities in which they do. They sure can hope. I don't think they can expect. You know, uh, I think those are very different words and very important uh, distinctions in, in in the word choice there. Yeah, they can definitely hope for it. I, I I would imagine they've been hoping for it since match day one, but they can't expect Liverpool to drop too many points. I mean, obviously for for Manchester City, if they go on and win the Champions League, then all is forgotten. The terrible loss at home to Wolves, 
the shock loss on the road to Norwich, it doesn't matter anymore because they've gone on to win the biggest prize, the prize that Pep hasn't won outside Barcelona, the prize that this you know supposed best team in Europe hasn't won, the prize that the board has desired for you know over a decade now. So this far behind, this early with these bad you know blips on the radar, I think really they have to go full force for the Champions League to to make all this you know, bad press and bad feelings go away. Yeah, I said that at the start of the season, that these two teams, they cover what the other one wants. And if Liverpool can get the Premier League and City get the Champions League, then I think they'll both be just as happy as each other. And to be honest, I wouldn't put that actually happen. Obviously, there's a lot to happen in European football. But as things stand right now, I think that might be the, uh, the way the trophies are split. But if we take a quick look at the game, in terms of the highlights, I think the first three clips I saw was a City mistake. And Raul Jimenez is latching onto a ball. And you think, oh, this doesn't look good. He didn't get any joy then, but he certainly did in the second half when he laid on not one but two excellent passes for Adama Traore. And all he had to do was stroke the ball home each time. Yeah, well, you know, Wolves only converted in the second half and, and pretty late. But you're right. In the first half, they had a few lethal counterattacks as well. And, you know, that's what made Wolves so successful last year, especially on the road. They were the team that had the most points off the big six last season. And the way they did it a lot of times was be very compact, sit deep, put essentially a uh, a wall in front of Patricio, and don't let anyone through. And when you get that chance to break on the counter, last year it was more Jimenez and, and, and Jota, but in this match you see Jimenez and Traore, and they just beat... Manchester City with pace. Otamendi, of course, isn't that quick. Fernandinho's getting up there. But even before the pass, the beautiful passes that you mentioned, Jimenez, especially on that first goal, absolutely pretzeled Otamendi. I mean, I thought there was, uh, you know, a, a sniper up on the roof at the Etihad. <laughs> and he, I thought he shot twice, two bullets, hit Otamendi in both legs. And took him out. And he had absolutely no shot. And then on the second goal as well, they beat them for pace. And you're right, Triore, it was great passes from Jimenez to Triore. And then Triore was just able to, to clinically finish. And so Wolves deserve this victory because those weren't the only two counterattacks that they had. And just finally at the end, you give them enough chances and they're going to finally hit the back of the net, which they did. Moving away from the title race, and there was something of an early six-pointer between Norwich and Aston Villa. And it turned out there were six goals as well. Unfortunately for Norwich, the split was 5-1 in Villa's favour. That said, for Villa, it's almost a performance that's been coming for Dean Smith's men. Because they've been a bit naive in defence, but you can't really sort of um, doubt their attacking potential. And that was certainly on display on Saturday. Yeah, you know, Aston Villa, their points have not reflected the way that they've played this year. They've done really well on several occasions. They've only they've they've only not scored two times this year in the league, or I guess in in all competitions. But and one of them was when Kevin Friend blew the play dead before they scored an equalizer in stoppage time, which was uh, which was a, a terrible call. So Aston Villa, their problem has not been scoring. You're right; it, it's been defensively, but in this game. It didn't really matter because Wesley almost had a hat trick in the first half if he had hit that penalty instead of getting it saved. But this is a performance that hopefully Aston Villa are going to take and finally launch into getting results. Because like you said, this has been coming, this type of game. They've been scoring. They've been on it. They've shown that they do have Premier League quality players. They just haven't been able to get as many points as they should. And finally, they broke out in this game. And for their sake, hopefully it continues. A bad week for Norwich, though. I think simply, you just got to forget that one as a club and just sort of move on because you can't let that sort of drag you down because otherwise you're going to sort of be really battling in a sort of bottom three, bottom four situation. So dust yourself off. Let the international break wash over you. Go again in a fortnight's time. Yeah, absolutely. For Norwich, obviously they have the high of of beating Manchester City earlier uh, this season, but... It was always going to be a dogfight for them, and when you're a team in the relegation battle, of course, you're, you're, you know you're gonna have games like this where it it should be it's it's a it's a team that you should beat 
or at least get a point off of, but you don't. You don't show up on that day. And I think that's all, all it comes down to. I think Norwich are going to be okay. They're going to struggle, of course, at, at times throughout the season. But I, I don't think this this 90 minutes is some sort of indictment on them as a squad or on them defensively or anything like that. Yeah, I think you're right in that sense. You shouldn't let them define their season as it were. So, Drew, let's take a quick look at your boys, Chelsea. To be honest, you'll be able to sum up their 4-1 win better than I can. So what was your take from Sunday's very comfortable win against Southampton? Yeah, very comfortable, comprehensive. Chelsea outplayed Southampton throughout the entire match. I mean, in the in the first half, they absolutely took it to them with three of their four goals. And then in the second half, I thought this was this was a good performance second half because that's where Chelsea have struggled a lot this season. Frank Lampard has, you know, shown to be not inept. I don't want to say that's a little bit too harsh, but definitely lacking a bit uh, in terms of halftime changes and, and halftime team talks. And Chelsea ha- have surrendered a lot of goals in the in the second stanza, where in this match they didn't. They really locked down defensively. Southampton. I don't think they had a shot on target in the second half, or maybe one. So Chelsea, I thought, did a did a fine job in the second half, which was great. And then I'll be a little bit biased here. the The American hope, Christian Pulisic, finally gets his first minutes uh, in in a month in the Premier League, and slotted a great pass for Batshuayi, and they combined for a goal. Two former Dortmund teammates, and I think this is probably the first time Pulisic has smiled in seven weeks in london so i i was happy to 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 see that but yeah great performance for chelsea they're really hitting their stride right now and go ahead sorry i was gonna what do you put like the pulisic lack of minutes down to because obviously like last january or sorry turn of the year purchase and everyone sort of eyeing him up as the the hazard heir apparent as it were and you know sort of you know he's going to be brought to fill that void i don't know if it's because Frank Lampard didn't buy him and he's not sort of necessarily fancying him at the moment. I mean, what's your take on all this? Because it's a bit of a strange one, for my opinion. Yeah, you know, I, I think Pulisic hasn't played well enough, right? I mean, in, in preseason, he did great, but that's preseason, right? That's not the yeah. same thing. And I think Lampard has gone with someone he knows, someone he's comfortable, Mason Mount, because he started since day one. And that's understandable. I don't think... Anyone should should criticize Lampard for that. Every manager is going to play the guys he knows best. You always go with your own, right? Anytime a manager gets hired, he brings in a whole new staff, guys he feels comfortable with, right? So I don't blame Lampard for that. Mason Mount has done well, right? William just scored in the Champions League. Callum Hudson-Odoi, even though he just came off injury, got the assist for Williams' goal in the Champions League. Hudson Adoy, in his first match back after injury, scored one, I believe it was one, uh, in the League Cup, where Pulisic hasn't really done any of that. And so I think the guys in front of him have just simply played better. And plus, when Pulisic has been on the field, or on the pitch, sorry, try and get the Americanisms are coming out of me right now. <laughs> That's all right, carry on. Um, when, he, when he's been out there... He's been quite anonymous at times. He hasn't – one of, I think, his best qualities is attacking 1v1, going at a player, using his footwork, and, and getting past a defender. And he has not done that whatsoever. I'm not sure if he's nervous. I don't know if he doesn't feel comfortable. I don't know if he feels he can't keep up with the pace in the Premier League. Whatever it is, he hasn't been playing in the way that he's best. And so I think that has contributed to him seeing seeing the bench. He hasn't really deserved a spot uh, in the 11. And I think that's why. This assist, I think, and, and I think he only played about 10 minutes or so. This assist, I'm sure some people will say, see, this is why he needs to play more. And others will say it was garbage time against Southampton. You can't really put anything into it. And I can understand both sides. I think with four competitions, he will get more minutes, and he has to take better advantage of that than he has so far. Okay, let's have a quick whistle-stop tour around London now. Sunday, Arsenal got the better of Bournemouth. I don't know about you, but I still don't know what Nicolas Pepe is all about. Do you, Drew? 
Absolutely not. He has not lived up to the money. He hasn't lived up to the hype. And I think he's got to figure it out very quickly. I mean, the, the the way that the fans turned on on Vanger, the way that the fans have you know been critical of, of Emery, that's got to be coming for Pepe sometime soon. I mean, he's got to get on. He's got to get on the stat sheet with some goals and some assists. I, I I'm pretty sure he sent in the the corner for the goal, but still, he he's got to be doing a lot more for them. Yeah, I think this could be a recurring theme throughout the season of we don't know what Nicolas Pepe does. But yeah, for the money they've spent, it's not quite what they want at the moment. But, you know, from Arsenal's point of view, they can't have too many complaints overall. They almost look the sort of the best of the best of the rest right now. So I've got a sneaky feeling they might finish top four if this sort of continues because the rest of the, their rivals, I mean, Chelsea are also looking good. I think for me at the moment, it looks like being a three-horse race for third and fourth between Arsenal, Chelsea and Leicester with Tottenham and Man United fighting over the Europa League scraps, which is not what you would have imagined at the start of the season. But anyway, before we run out of time, West Ham Crystal Palace, bit of a surprise win for Crystal Palace. I know both teams have got off to a good start this season, but you would have thought going into it, West Ham would have been the favourites. But Palace, they got it right. They also got some uh, VAR assistance because it overturned an offside call, which was once again incorrect. Yeah, that, that call, I mean, that was a dramatic call because it was right at the end of the game and we had to wait and see if IU was going to be a judged uh onside or not. For Crystal Palace, I think this is a great this is a great away win for them. But I want to say this. I think Crystal Palace is the worst Premier League side to have ever occupied fourth outside of, you know, like the first 2 weeks of the season. They're not in fourth anymore, but for 24 hours on Saturday into Sunday, they were they were sitting fourth in the table. And they really don't deserve it. They have yet to score more than two goals in any match this season. And I, I don't want to say they got lucky because I, I thought they 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 maybe not earned this victory, but at least were even if you want to be, you know, really generous with West Ham. But Palace, they have a they have a terrible uh set of fixtures coming up. They play uh I don't remember the order, but I City, Liverpool, Chelsea, Leicester, they're all in there over the next few games. So Palace are going to be back in the relegation zone very, very quickly. West West Ham, I have not bought into them yet. I know a lot of people are saying, oh, well, you know, I think they can fight for top four. Who's better, West Ham or Leicester? I don't see it from West Ham. I think they had a good run of form, and I think they can battle for top six. But losing at home to Crystal Palace, I think, at least to me, proves in my mind they're they're not up for the task of, of top four yeah I mean I know the Premier League is in a state of flux right now but there's no way West Ham are finishing the top four this season I'm sorry I'm not having that I mean they are improved but yeah you can't lose Crystal Palace and then finish in the top four this season not happening so if that happens I'll eat my words come May but I don't think it will uh, finally Watford Sheffield United nil-nil is literally nothing really to talk about in that one Watford still looking for their first win I guess they can just hope for the international break to sort of come around and they can finally hit the reset button. But we've been saying that for eight weeks now and um, it is getting a bit worrying for the, the Vicarage Road outfits. In terms of um, last week's loser pool picks, Drew, remind me, which one did you pick out of Leicester and Wolves to lose? I had Wolves losing oh, and right. Carl... Yeah. I... <laughs> oh, dear. What? What? Yeah, watching watching the score you know, across the, the graphic, I was like, oh, this is bad for City, but they're gonna get they're gonna get one late on or something. And then watching Leicester and Liverpool, when Leicester leveled it, I'm thinking, oh, Carl was wrong. And then of course Liverpool gets that penalty. Nope, I was wrong. I had Wolves losing, and they certainly did not. Exactly. So not a good start for you, Drew. You're not off the mark yet. Me and Carl on three points each. We'll pick up that in a fortnight's time when we come back on the other side of the international break. And that's about it for this show. So, Drew, sterling effort. You run the channels. You carry the load on your own. But an absolute fantastic performance. Thanks ever so much for your time again. Yeah, well, thank you for having me, Dan. I appreciate it. That's something I like to do as the uh, lone striker. Need to uh, do all the off-the-ball running I can to make sure my teammates can uh, do what they need to do. So, happy to have uh, helped the team in this instance. Sterling work, sir. Right, with that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast in association with Loserpool. And until next time, goodbye.
Social Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.